Hello everyone, welcome back to the Bloody Pit. I welcome back to the show Mark Maddox, artist extraordinaire. And uh, tonight we are going to talk about a movie that uh, has gone through many critical reevaluations over the years. First of all, Mark, how are you doing, my friend? Uh, pretty darn good. Pretty good. Um, you know, life's, life's exciting. How about you? Uh, hanging on by my fingernails. No, actually, things are pretty good. <laughs> it's just the, uh, the the normal the normal day to day strangeness. Uh, I've just we're just coming out of tax season, which means that I'm just coming out of a long period of time where I'm working every single day because right. I'm working my regular job and then going and working uh, doing uh, personal taxes on the on the weekends. So it becomes a it becomes a very long slog to 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 get to the middle of April. And uh, I hate to say this, but uh, there was a there was a weekend a few weekends ago where I was like, man, cool, only one more weekend. And then I looked at the calendar and I realized, <laughs> oh shit, no, there's two more weekends. Fuck, there's two more weekends. Who did yeah, this to me? Yeah, suffer. I don't want to hear about you working seven days a week. I always work seven days a week. You little whiner. Uh, well, okay, that's true. But, but, mine, you know, but mine's a I lot of fun. For the, mine's I a lot of fun. For the man, so. I work for the man. You work for yourself, man. Yeah, that's you work for the man. What, what I want, I'm expecting to hear the you know cross 110th Street song for you to break out into that or something. You know, well, so. I'm just I'm sorry, but I'm just not cool enough to carry off that tune. I guess. <laughs> uh, well, the uh, the thing that we're going to cover this time around, and I, I chose the word thing very carefully there because I want to start the dis- I want to start the discussion before we actually get to the movie mm-hmm. is uh, 1979's just barely. 1979. Yeah, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, this is a movie that I know that we both have an interesting history with, but before we get to our history with seeing the movie, I think that both of us come from a general, come from, uh, we're not quite the same age, but we come from the same generation that grew up, uh, especially during the 70s, Mm -hmm. watching, I mean, watching and just re-watching the three seasons of Star Trek during the 70s, as the show gained a cultural relevance that it really never got to in its initial run uh, from 66 to 69. Mm-hmm. And so when I was a kid, Star Trek was just this, this extraordinarily cool television show that um, I, I, I loved and watched every time I could get my get, get a chance to watch it. I, as a kid, the only chance I had, it was it was not stripped. It wasn't something that I could see five days a week. It was something I'd only see one day a week. Wow. And that yeah yeah it, that's just the way it played out, right? And the 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 thing is that made it in a way. I often wonder if that made it a little bit more special in a way because it was something that was like a regular television show that was being produced, you know, at that time because it was something I could only see once a week. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, the joys of it was you know when I was a kid I didn't know that it <laughs> that it was an old show I just thought it was a show, yeah. but. You know, back then, most of the shows that I was watching, especially on uh, television after school, were things that were from previous decades anyway. You know, right. uh, sit- sitcoms from uh, the yeah, 60s. Leave it, leave it to Beaver, uh, you know, right. um, uh, I Love Lucy, uh, Lost in Space. I mean, it was all 50s and 60s stuff. Right, and mixed was, in with uh, Three Stooges shorts and Little Rascals shorts Little Rascals, and yeah. Warner Brothers cartoons and things sure. like that. Sure, So. To me, I kind of grew up, and I I don't know uh, how many kids of our generation kind of felt the same way, where it didn't really feel like there was um, a, a set start and stop for when entertainment became something that I paid attention to. It was just this big mass of stuff 
that you eventually figured out, oh, okay, well, this is slightly older than that or whatever. But in the 70s, people who became Star Trek fans were pretty common because, like I say, almost everywhere, those, those, um, what was it, 70-some-odd episodes, those, those, I can't remember the full the full count. Those episodes were in rotation, in syndication, uh, on pretty much at least one channel in every area of the country. So yeah. everybody had access to Star Trek. You might not have access to Doctor Who, depending on if you uh, you know you were able to pick up a PBS station. But damn it, you could definitely well, see Doctor Star Who Trek. was like 80, 81, 82, something like that when those Tom Baker ones came. Over. They had a little run of John Pertwee, but but nobody yeah. knew what to do with it and put it on at terrible times. I saw it at like one o'clock in the middle of a school day. When I was at my aunt's house and the school I was going to was out for the week, but their school was in, I'm like, wow, they're showing this incredible thing that young people would absolutely love. And yet it's on at one thirty. Who the hell's going to be able to see this great show? And then yeah. it wasn't until several years later that the Tom Baker ones came on PBS and changed up. With Star Trek, I started seeing it. I did see it in 69 or 68 maybe even 67 at the air base in Ramstein, Germany. It was a Corbomite maneuver. It kind of freaked me out because it was like, wow, they got a guy with pointed ears is one of the heads of the show. And it was very, uh, it was a, it was a very cool thing to see, but I wasn't really a Star Trek fan until about 75. My brother kind of started the mantle in 70, 71, 72, something like that was when he got into it. And it was, uh, I don't know if it was out of Washington, but we lived in Cumberland, Maryland, and it came on every day at, at uh, 5 o'clock. And so many places across the country picked that time time to run Star Trek. And from then on, wherever you lived, I mean, I, I you know, I lived in Cumberland. I lived in, in North Carolina. And then I lived in, in down here in Tallahassee, and every place ran it. It was like you were stupid if you weren't running this very successful syndication package. And it started to build up, and I really started to notice it about 75 or so. so no, no, earlier than that, because they had the animated series and everything. Yeah. yeah. It was 73, but by, by the time 75 hit, and I had joined a little Star Trek club here in town, uh, which was, to me, so much better. I hated sports, and there's a lot of stuff that young people were into I thought was boring, or I just didn't care. And then I heard there was a club like that in town, and I joined it, and it was like I came home. I mean, I, I, got, I started doing fanzine art with our little cl- club fanzine and stuff like that, but but it was it was uh, the stuff coming out, the paperbacks coming out, the calendars, yeah, the, yeah. the the poster books, the technical manuals. There was already the great books, the the great book, the making of Star Trek by Stephen E. Whitfield, and then some yeah. of the ones by uh, David Gerald, where he talks about the creation of episodes and stuff like that. And it start it started to build this head of steam that wasn't stopping. Well, hell, the uh, Alan Dean Foster log books, the re- the the, uh, the, the ones from the animated episodes. Uh, the animated. Well, well, there was first. There was James. Oh, no, no, Bl- they were they were episode. They were uh, weren't there? Uh, no, James. James Blish did. James Blish did the original did the first series. the first series, and then Alan Dean Foster took yeah. over when it was the animated show. But Alan Dean Foster wrote those things like serious. I mean, I, I think that the animated series I, I really love because it is very serious science fiction, especially for yeah. Saturday morning television. That and Land of the Lost were the only two smart shows on 
you know, uh, and uh, but Star Trek, I, I was very impressed and I still love it. But Alan Dean Foster, he wrote some of those like, I mean, when you read it, it was like this could have actually been a serious adult film or movie or whatever mm-hmm. the way he wrote them. And uh, the animated series was great, uh, but it kept it kept building ahead of steam and, and it just didn't stop until after Star Wars came out. That was the thing that pushed. They were working on uh, phase two the TV right. series. And I know you've seen probably footage from it. And that one guy who was briefly in Star Trek, the motion picture with his, uh, what do you call it? His mullet or whatever, a Vulcan <laughs> with a mullet or whatever. Yeah. And, um, uh, was it Mark Gastero? No, yeah, David, uh, David Gastero. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he was going to play Ga- Zahn because yeah, Nimoy was going to leave and Nimoy was going to leave and, and everything. And so yeah. they started up with this guy, but they ended up, um, that got, that got scrapped when Star Wars came out with such a colossal hit. They, moved it over to being made into a film and see that's the thing i i i've been re- uh, reading big chunks of both uh, both of uh, our friend mark clark's two star trek faq oh books. yeah yeah i've got it i've got i've got the first one he gave me a copy of it it's it's really good oh yeah both, both the books are fantastic and i went back to them for to, to to get to reacquaint myself with the details of the lead up to the film and it's really kind of amazing because there was there had been talk uh, for a while about possibly doing something with Star Trek. And so even before Star Wars came out in 75, they were talking with Roddenberry about trying to bring it back to television because by then, syndication had turned Star Trek into a kind of cultural flashpoint, a, a moneymaker, an obvious moneymaker. Oh, so, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the uh, the idea, they started talking to, to Roddenberry uh and in May of 1975, uh, he was uh, he was given by Paramount somewhere between three to five million dollars to develop a script and try to bring something back to television. And uh, what I find to be really, really, and this is this is something I wanted to. That's why I cracked open Mark's books mm-hmm. to make sure that I remembered this correctly. The first thing that they, they started working on uh, to kind of bring Star Trek back was a, was a story called the God Thing, mm-hmm. which featured. Uh, a uh, grounded Admiral Kirk reassembling his old crew on a refitted Enterprise to clash with a godlike entity across uh, across the, uh, the, the 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 stars that was hurtling its way toward Earth. Mm-hmm. The object turns out to be a super advanced computer, the remains of a scheming race who were cast out of their dimension. Mm. Uh, my God, that's close to the movie we got, now ain't it? Well, I mean, it seems to me that Roddenberry was fixated on that subject, and so that's why. I think because so. they say yeah. that out of all the Star Trek films, that's the one that he had his, his, uh, uh, you know, his input on. That was the the major one. After that, he kind of got you know tossed aside, uh, whether yeah, whether because, good or well, bad, for, for for various reasons. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I don't even know if it was a bad thing or a good thing. I mean, I'm so grateful for Gene Roddenberry's contribution to science fiction and everything. But, you know, I mean, I think that sometimes, I mean, in some cases, you know, I mean, the, the movies moved on. Uh, it, to to a more digestible, in a way, um, a series of films. Uh, mm-hmm. But but having said that, I absolutely love this film. I I defend well, it vehemently. Yeah. Is vehemently and, and a right the, word? Is that a real word? That Vehement? is that is as close to a real word as I'm worried about you getting. <laughs> but, but, the, but, the, but the real thought that I have always had about this is that 
Phase two, that that abandoned television project, has always seemed like an absolutely amazing lost lost project. I mean, you know, on on some other planet, that's the the path that was taken, and there was a Star Trek sh- series in the mid seventies that either you know stood the test of time or failed miserably, whichever way it went. Yeah. And I would love to have been able to see that because. Looking at uh, some of the some of the stories, I mean, because they commissioned whole scripts from people. I mean, they they started talking to uh, a whole lot of the different people to they brought in who had worked on the original series. Norman Spinrid wrote yeah. uh, a, a, oh, yeah. a, a different story. Um, it, it, it 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 drives me crazy to think about how amazing it would have been to just have that you know get another shot. Were those uh, stories ever published as a book or anything? Did anybody ever do those? You know. Those oh wow! Scrim- I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure. Great. I think that it might be possible that they were, but I'll be honest, I'm not. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I mean, you you read about this. It's like this is this is right out of Mark's book. It's like one of the th- one of the things that they were doing is. Uh, well, what what they settled, what they initially settled on was uh, producing uh, a story called Planet of the Titans, and they budgeted the thing uh, for ten million dollars. Uh, but wow. and because of that, that's why it didn't get made. But yeah. the idea behind it is absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. And the other stories that they play around in is like they they brought in Alan Dean Foster, who was you know at that point connected to uh, the whole thing. There was uh, a story, a story by uh, Alan Foster, and he cooked up an expanded version of the story titled "In Thy Image," which was quickly selected to serve as Phase Two's feature-length pilot episode. Mm-hmm. The concept was favored by both Roddenberry and Michael Eisner, who had succeeded uh, D- Barry Diller at uh, Paramount as CEO. Uh, they expanded into a, f- a full-length screenplay. And that's when Roddenberry went ahead and got a bunch of uh, scripts in line because one of the problems they had they had, had in the initial uh, run of Star Trek is that they had run out of scripts and they had had to kind of delay and push back trying to get more scripts in the door so that they had enough episodes for you right. know, whole seasons. And right. so uh, Foster, uh, Alan Dean Foster submitted a story where the Enterprise discovers a parallel Earth uh, somewhat like the American South of the early 1800s, only with whites enslaved by blacks, which seems like a, a pretty obvious allegory somewhere along the lines of, oh, I don't know, let that be your last battlefield from the original run. Yeah, combined, um, combined with uh, Omega Glory. A little bit. Yeah. No, yeah. And uh, to be honest, I think they did too many parallel Earth stories in the first three years. So, yeah. Yeah, I liked I, them. I actually really did like the parallel Earth ones, but if they had done another one beyond that, I'd be like, "Okay, people, you're going back to the same well, and the well is poison. Stop." Yeah, please you stop know? at this point. Yeah, but I love them. I love the gangster one, and I love the one with the Nazis. <gasps> did I say that on your show? I did not say I love <laughs> Nazis, people. I love the one with the Nazis, just like Indiana Jones. Anybody who wants to call and complain, go fuck yourself. <laughs> well, the um, that's not those aren't the only two parallel Earth stories though. There's Miri. Well, there's uh, Omega Glory too. Technically, Omega Glory. God, I hate there's that the, episode. Uh, huh? I don't hate the episode. I just don't like it that much. When they get to the final oh, I thing, I don't, I don't hate. I don't hate it either. I think it's actually e, a pretty good e, episode. E let down by Roddenberry's yeah. favorite. Roddenberry's favorite episode. I think at least that was said at one point in time. Wow, really? Yeah. And that's crazy town. Anyway, uh, uh, and then bread and bread and circuses comes kind of close to to being a parallel mm-hmm. thing, and, you know, like, and like and, two and, sections and, of it. It's like uh, 
a Desilu production with uh, with barbarians attacking each other with swords. <laughs> we got the three cameras set up. <laughs> well, and then also there's, I always feel like a piece of the action is a little too close for comfort to being a parallel Earth story. It is, uh, but it's so fun. I still, it, it, it's, it's I a shit ton love of it. fun, but at yeah, the same time, it, yeah, going back the to way. the whole, going back to the whole very easy, oh, look, it's just like Earth in a certain time period that we already have standing sets for. Seems like a bit sure. of a cop out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean by that. It's like the episodes that suspiciously look like Mayberry, like Mary, <laughs> you know, so that, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But yeah. So we got this thing and it's they the 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 phase two didn't go. You know, so no, it, now it and and I'm like you, man, God, what might have been. But then, you know, there's people that, that I even heard somebody the other day on Facebook going, What would you rather have had? Would you like for them to have gone ahead and done phase two? Or would you have are you happy? Are you glad they did the films? And it was most of the people that were said, look, the movies, you know, well, at least most of them are great, so we're good. But yeah, yeah, I can see yeah. I can see that what if sort of thing where you sort of look at it and go, man, I'd really would have loved to have seen what they did. You know, I really would have. But then I think Next Generation picked up some of that. And I heard that even one episode, I don't know if it was classic track or something that was written, actually got made years later as either. I don't know if it was if it was Next Generation or Deep Space Nine or Voyager. One of them got made finally like years later that I think was originally written for the original series that that was sitting there, you know? Well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me, but uh, I'll be honest. I don't really know. I will say this, that it was the, you know, they, they had started uh, trying to wind Star Trek back to television uh, before Star Wars came out and became the biggest thing in the world. Yeah. Uh, But once it became the biggest thing in the world, Everything shifted to not doing television, but trying to bring Star Trek to the big screen. And depending on your point of view, uh, let's put it this way. I don't think Paramount was very happy with the outcome one way or the other. Uh, But the and I don't think the creative people who had to rush the freaking film out. I think the rushing aspect weren't happy about it, but still, you know, I mean, there's there's a difference between that and actually talking about the film. And then there's Paramount executives. um, The movie, you heard about all the different things with how much it cost to make and the things that were scrapped. Oh, the things that were And the companies that were fired. And then they had to rush in practically every available special effects man, including the great Douglas Trumbull and John Dykstra, bring them in. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, had to work super fast and all that. And, um, you know, the movie that we saw at the theater was an incomplete film. That's why yeah. I tonight plan pretty much on talking about the final director's cut, which I just, you know, which just came out this year. Or oh, last, yeah. That's, excuse that's... me, last year. Uh, because to me, that's that's what that's what he wanted. And they perfected it and everything like that. But I still love the original uh, cut. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say it and I, 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 um, I think it's one of my, uh, it's one of my favorite films. Hmm. I mean, I'm not saying like favorite, like in top 10 or anything like that, but it's probably definitely in my top 50 films ever because I was just blown away at the theater. I was, I don't know why when I left and I, and, and everybody's like, ah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. And then you heard somebody go, eh, I thought it was stunk or I thought it was boring. I'm like, 
God, it's like they were speaking Russian to me or something. I'm like, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? That thing was freaking magnificent. And I'm the kind of guy that needs action and speed. And, you know, I need well, things. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Often people will point out that the Star Trek movie, the Star Trek, the motion picture, if you mm-hmm. just look at it from the perspective of, <clears throat> let's say, 1979-1980, the, the film that it most resembles is not anything from the Star Trek television series. It most resembles 2001 A Space Odyssey. Exactly. And so if that's not the pace and the or kind of story Or actually what it really enjoy, reminds me more of, actually even more than 2001 A Space Odyssey, is by the same creator. It reminds me of Andromeda Strain. It, it yeah, the people yeah. look, act, and talk. They do the same thing that they do in the movie Fantastic Voyage. These are all professionals, and they have that sort of weird, sort of professional thing. It's like watching the astronauts. You know, they're kind of like oh, these people are kind of boring because they're really the real deal. You know, kind of thing. And that's what I love about Fantastic Voyage and 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 Andromeda Strain is that is that I really feel like I'm in a room full of scientists and doctors. But yeah. it, it, it is it is very obvious to me though that that is asking a lot for an for an audience that came expecting something like the three years of Star Trek. Yeah, what that what or what um, what uh, Harlan Ellison called space cops. <laughs> yeah, space cops. Much. That's what I mean. I actually yeah, yeah, he said that on TV on Tom Snyder one. Yeah, it's just space cops. You know, and it, okay. Okay, let's say it is space cops. They go and they 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 save the universe. They kick ass. You know, sometimes they get laid. But the thing is, uh, it's still real. It's still head over heels above so many other things that were made. Uh, You know, the only other things I can think of that are at that level are 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 are, you know, or maybe even in some ways better, lower, outer limits and the prisoner. Where Mm -hmm. you're you're talking about shows that really did try to sell you these new concepts, and Star Trek was clearly one of those. And Star Trek is a show that, although it, I, I would. I would uh, agree with most people that feels that, that feel that the third season is the lesser of the three seasons. Mm-hmm. There still was not a quality drop off that made you embarrassed to watch the show. Mm-hmm. Um, where whereas something like uh, Lost in Space becomes something where past a certain point as an adult in you know watching it, especially when it was being shown originally. Yeah. It's just not for you, you know. Now it's- the first, the first half, the first half of Lost in Space is excellent. That's my right. opinion. The second but half then- of the first season's good, but then the thir- the second, third season, and it, it, it's just like there's some of it that's oh my god, and then the rest of it's like it's holy cringe. It's, crap, it's cringy. holy crap. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can you take this over the cliff? And I blame the, you know, I don't know if Bill Self was connected to that, the guy that brought us Batman or one of the guys that made the calls on Batman or not. Oh, but, I don't know. You know, I just know that I just know that it followed the sta- the standard path that a lot of, uh, let's just say, expensive shows tended to follow in those days, which is well, they, they were every, less, it was, they became it was, less uh, serious. It was they ton- became I, less. It, I'm they sorry, became less I, serious. I'm sorry. They became less serious and jokey because that was the way that they thought that you could 
broaden the audience. Well, it was the thing that was famous at the time was kitschy tongue in cheek. Batman started it, and then other ones started to follow suit. Uh, Lost in Space did it. Voyage to the Bomb Sea did it a little bit. People complained that Lo- that Voyage did it as bad as Lost in Space. Not true. There was one or two, no, maybe no. Yeah. three or four episodes that you look at and you go, eh. But, eh, I got to be honest, I'm completing a rewatch of the entire run of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And I got to yeah. tell you, by the time you get to that last season, yeah. it's about half the episodes. And I'm not and I'm not kidding. It's about, about half, half the episodes the where you're going. This was a bad idea. But OK. Right. Right. Oh, and if you're doing, by the way, I'm saying this publicly, too, and I want this put in the show. If you're going to do a Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea episode, I want to be on it with you. Oh, I'd love to, but what I would like to do is I think we would specify doing uh, like a an, uh, an episode from the first season, that black and white season, yeah. and then um, I've already got uh, my a, favorite a, one. A, from cu- a couple of episodes from the color seasons, and trying to trying to hone in on mostly good ones, and then one that we both would consider to be terrible. But Let's nevertheless, see, uh, well, yeah, well, I mean, for me, and we'll, and I know you'll cut this out of the episode is, and we'll talk about this later. But uh, I got to do a couple with some giant monsters, especially men fish with the sea view and a headlock. I oh, have just, to. Be, just just because it has giant monsters doesn't make it a bad episode. As a matter of fact, oh, that has a tendency that, to make it feel like it's a good episode. That's a boys. That's what I call a boys show. After the first season, it becomes a boys show. Yeah, it's a, it's true. for kid boys. Anyway, so but but uh, Bill Self. There's two people I'd like to go back in time and, and slap in the face. You know, uh, people go, if you could go back in time, what would you do? I'd go back in time and kill Hitler. Okay, fine. We all got that one. But I would jump in the time machine. I would go back first off and slap the living shit out of Pauline KL when she's getting ready to tell tell uh, David Lean that he uh, uh, his movies, are none of them are any good. And then I'd also go back in time and slap Bill Self when he told people we can't do Batman as a serious show. And make it a comedy. Those are the two people I liked it. But anyway, now that I got that out, so I we're understand. we're talking, <laughs> we're talking. What the fuck are we talking about? I forgot. These, okay, are, so, these, these are uh, anger confessions of Mark Maddox, Volume yes. Six. This will be this will be some kind of you know scandal sheet later. But <laughs> so, but with Star Trek, I mean, it was it was okay. One last thing about the kitsch era, and then I'm gonna let you, I'm gonna let it go. Uh, Man from Uncle started off fairly good, and, and then, then it started and start started getting kitschy. But then the last season they got serious again. I'm yeah. watching one from I think it's season three where where Napoleon Solo is dancing in a tree with a gorilla, with a cave woman or a, oh a jungle woman in there, and he's doing the you know the you know waving his arms around and stuff like he's at some kind of you know hippie nightclub. And I'm like, oh my god! But then they get to the next season. There's this, an episode where Napoleon Solo is being tortured and the whole and that season changed it like it went back even even a little bit more than the than the first two seasons there's one episode where he's being tortured I'm like oh my god this is almost scary so they started to pull out of that dive but I think it was too late unfortunately well, the, the, I'm, I'm glad you bring up um Man from Uncle, because that reminds me, that's that's a show, that's one of the 60s shows that I intend to start a rewatch of sometime later this year. I'm working my way through um, second season of Wild Wild West right now, uh, really enjoying yeah. that. Oh, yeah, and yeah. That, that's a show that really walked a tightrope between those two extremes. But back to Star Trek. One last thing, Wild Wild West got away with it, though, because because, because well, that way Robert, Conrad, Robert Conrad played it straight while weirdness was going on but it never got really stupid 
It never said we're stupid. It was weird. And, and he was never and he was never winking at the camera. No, the, the, the only winks at the camera were the disguises of Artemis, and that was. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, okay, we're back to the back to Star Trek the motion picture. Okay, so, now so I I will admit, huge Star Trek fan, uh, was well aware that the movie was coming out because if for no other reason, there was an ad for like a year that was the full back. Uh, back cover of every damn comic book I bought yep. for a long time. Smart, smart move. When you put ads in comic books at the back, the film usually does real well. I've Especially always noticed that. these kinds of movies, yeah. Well, I so mean, here's an a, officer here's, so here's and a gentleman. Thing. Well, I never got to see <laughs> Star Trek: The Motion Picture un- uh, until uh, it came to television because right. when it came out, I was eleven. Mm-hmm. And th- trying to get to a movie theater was nearly impossible. The first Star Trek film I saw in the theater was Star Trek II. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, haven't missed one since, but uh, mm-hmm. there were times when I w- wish I had missed one. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking, I'm looking five. at you, five, and 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 at least half of the next generation films. Dude, I don't even know when we do that episode what the hell we're gonna do. It's gonna be like we're gonna have to commit sepku after we're done. So go ahead. Uh, I, I yeah I, I don't know anyway so Star Trek the motion picture I saw when it came to television it was spread out over two nights and to me then seeing it on television it felt like just a really long two part episode yeah and and to be honest that was not a bad way to first catch it mm-hmm. but I know that you saw well there was a bunch of extra footage you saw. If you exactly. saw it on, if you didn't see it on HBO or the movie channel or something, you saw the I one saw it on they, commercial television. They, they yeah. prepped, they prepped for television, and they mm-hmm. put a bunch of stuff in, including Shatner floating down in a spacesuit to go retrieve Spock with a bunch of scaffolding made out of wood behind him as he floated down. They didn't even bother to hide the special effect. They had it. They stuck it back in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the thing is, for me at that age, uh, I would have been twelve. I'm guessing mm-hmm. twelve or thirteen. I can't remember what I can't remember when it show, was show, initially shown on television, but nevertheless, right. that was perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. But the uh, you I know caught it theatrically, and you, you talked momentarily. You just talked a few moments ago about how you your reaction to it was very positive. Yes. Well, my reaction to it was was positive too. I don't consider it to be one of my favorite films at all, but mm-hmm. I do enjoy going back periodically and re-watching it. And I do feel mm-hmm. that when Robert Wise was given the opportunity to kind of go in and finally finish the damn thing, mm-hmm. the uh, the improvements to the film are, are wonderful, but I still do enjoy all of the stuff that... Uh, you know, like like the scene you just described with Kirk. I do yeah. still like the fact that those are things that you can see as well because I, I like some of that stuff. I, I, I'm glad that there's uh, there's been extra stuff added back into Star Trek Two and Star Trek Six. Right. But the uh, because there's they're just little bitty pieces, and I know why they get. I know why in those films they were taken out. They were taken out for pacing. But yeah. in this case, there are times even in. The, the my preferred cut, which is the most you know the most recent you know director's cut, if we're going to call it that, mm-hmm. uh, there are still moments in the film where I feel like this special effects scene is going on too freaking long, and mm-hmm. it's because, to me, what Star Trek has always been, the movie submarines. Uh, it's not that I don't enjoy the film; it's that I don't enjoy the film as Star Trek. I enjoyed it. I enjoy it as science fiction spectacle, and that's a mm-hmm. different kind of enjoyment for me mm-hmm. from what I go to Star Trek generally for. In other words, I like it, but it ain't exactly the kind of Star Trek that I really crave. Mm, because that's definitely for, different. Yeah. Yeah, for me, what I want from Star Trek 
is a lot more character interaction. I want those actors in those roles mm-hmm. being the characters that they grew into on that television series. I like right. those characters, and this movie only gives us flashes of that. Now, here's the thing. That's something you can't put on the shoulders of the fact that they... We should tell people. The the movie was had to be in theaters. There was a contract that uh, Paramount... Uh, signed and got themselves into that they were going to deliver this movie finished by December 7th, 1979, come hell or high water. That was a deal they had with distributors. And so no matter what, that was the end point. And they screwed themselves so hard because they tried to go with uh, an untried uh, special effects group. And so almost two years of work on the special effects had to be tossed out because it was garbage yeah. and they had to start all over again. So the balloon budgeted because it had to be done. It had to be done on a timeline. They couldn't push the, the, the release date back because if so, Paramount was going to lose even more money. Yeah. So as he said before, the movie went into the theaters in 1979 unfinished. Nobody yeah. thought it was done. Nobody involved in it thought it was going to be done. My, one of my favorite quotes is from Walter Koenig who said that after that movie came out he said I didn't think there was ever going to be another Star Trek film I mean look what happened yeah <laughs> it, I think a every, lot of them said that yeah, yeah. so uh, the, uh, the I do enjoy the film now uh, it's not one of my favorite Star Trek films that it's, but it is one that I do admit, I'll admit I go back and I do rewatch periodically I think I've watched it uh, I think I rewatched it one time uh, late last year and now of course I've done it again to talk about it here. Mm-hmm. And it's, so it's not a film that I shy away from watching, but it is one that um, it, it doesn't feel to me like the other Trek films, even as bad as Star Trek V is, mm-hmm. it still feels kind of like Star Trek, even, well, even as I'm cringing in, in like, you know, roughly yeah, 35 to 40 You're making me going to hurl here in a minute. But, yeah. yeah. But, it, you know, the, the, the joys of this movie are pretty profound. I do enjoy it. I, I think that uh, one of the things that Mark uh, Mark Clark uh, says in one of the FAQ books about the film is that for a lot of people, the decision to tell this story mm-hmm. was the thing that broke it because this story has no antagonist. That's what real words, science fiction's about, though. No, 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 but no, no, no. But here's the thing. Yeah, I don't agree with that statement. Well, no, no. Hold on. Let me explain. Real science fiction doesn't have have an antagonist, but most of the time, Star Trek does. Um, yes and no. It depends okay. upon, I mean, you've got episodes where is somebody an actual antagonist or are they somebody that just needs to be dealt with and, 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 and says something. The first episode, the first episode that I ever saw was Corbo Might Maneuver. In the right. end, it turns out not to be an actual evil alien, but somebody just checking on them to see if they're okay to, to be friends with. That is in that's a variation of what we saw with this movie. I felt the same thing. Corbo Might Maneuver, one of my absolute favorite episodes. It has no actual villain in it. Although you think there's a villain in it, the same way you think in Star Trek, the motion picture, there's a villain. It turns out not to be. It's a creature that just doesn't understand. And Star Trek did that sometimes. But you're right. Most of the time, it was was some villainous person, monster. Eh, Not monster so much, but, uh, you know, somebody or something that was doing something rotten. Uh, So, yeah, while that's the case, I don't think that has to be the intent of 
of this movie. I mean, um, we're going to jump over to what you had said earlier about it being more akin to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm -hmm. When I think of this movie, I didn't even think about that as a kid. So, I mean, I'm, I'm Mr whiny critical guy but when i'm watching this thing i'm so blown away by it that i didn't even sit there and go back and go well the old series had to have a bad guy and it's like i didn't give a shit the movie oh, was no, no, really no. good that, that's just it at that point in time at that age i don't think either one of us had the critical faculties to kind of think hard about why some people were having a bad reaction to the film and like I say, I think a lot of that does fall into the category of not getting what you expected. In other words, it's not right. what it says on the tin. Yeah. And so, well, and remember, too, I, I kind of got a heads up that this thing was going to be not soft pedal because that's not a right word, but not violent or anything by the fact that it had a G rating. I mean, it was well, rated yeah, G that when was, it that came That was kind of weird. That was kind of weird. But even at, even when, uh, when I was a kid and, and seeing it, that didn't seem that weird to me because, well, I mean, it's a television series being blown up for for t you know for for the for the big screen sure sure so i i go to see this film and I, I i i'm taking it in i was amazed as to how very happy i was when i left the theater i don't know if it was star trek's back or or whatever all i know was i saw something incredible and i think it has to do with the slick professionalism of of robert weiss i think that while yeah. You've got a guy, they, they had the balls to do something that people didn't want to see. Kirk's 10 years older, or maybe actually, yeah, 10 years yeah, older. he's 10, 10 years older. He's 10 years older. Spock's gone on to do his thing. The five-year mission's been gone for a while. It's, it's, it, it's gone eight years. Uh, Spock has gone to Vulcan. He's trying to become a pure Vulcan. Can't do it. Comes back, but still, so much of that is is uh, him coming back and Kirk being frustrated with the fact that his best friend ever is acting like a freaking robot, mm -hmm. and he can't he can't deal with that. McCoy's giving him shit because that's why he brought McCoy onto the ship is because he knew somebody was going to talk turkey with him in the middle of him trying to. I don't want to say that I agree with the movie uh, or, or agree with with it's a point of view. Was Kirk using the situation to become captain or did you just go, look, this really is a problem that they need somebody at my level to do, not Decker. So he comes back. He hires. Well, the he, he pulls the experience card. And honestly, it's a good card to pull because uh, yeah, it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like, OK, good. You know, the ship. OK. Make sure the goddamn ship runs, it flies and everything, and I'm going to take care of the alien when we get there. But this thing about handing handing it to Decker and saying, you deal with this young captain, no fucking way. There's no way. So Kirk it, it is actually pushed back by the way Decker treats him and is like, God, could this be true? I think in the end it turns out not to be true. Look at the way Kirk Kirk handles himself. About halfway through the film, things start really showing. And I and and I heard this comment before. If Decker had had done if they had done it exactly Decker's way, there was two or three times the ship would have been destroyed if he had done it his way. So, but it is still frustrating. This is a more mature idea than the original TV series was going to deal with. Hey, your people have gotten older and they're uncertain. You know, you bring McCoy back on. He's a hippie now. He didn't want to come back, but he did it when he saw that Kirk really needed him. Uh, the yeah, transporters and that, and aren't that working. Is, that is one of the moments in the film, and it, and it plays so true. 
even with things that aren't said. It's so obvious why he wanted Bones back. And it isn't actually said out loud. You in the audience who've been watching, you know, who've watched those episodes over and over again, the real reason Kirk wants him back is for real. And he says it in a way, but he doesn't put it as plainly as I will, which is he wanted Bones on that ship because that's someone he knows will get in his face. Yeah. Yeah. And, he needed and, he and, needed a he needed an emergency break. Mm-hmm. Is what he needed. And then they bring Spock on. Of course everybody's fine, you know, Sulu's fine, uh Uhura's fine, Chekhov's fine, uh you know, Rand is fine. You know, it's nice to see her back again. Yep. And and, and all this stuff. And then and then all of a sudden Spock comes on board and everybody's looking at him like, what the fuck is his problem? And mm-hmm. it was the big it was the big thing. Is Spock gonna be a Vulcan? Well, in the end, he is the thing that lets us know because of what he the path he was going down and failed, uh, that he doesn't wanna be like that robot anymore. He doesn't wanna be like this 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 bizarre non emotional machine heading towards Earth that doesn't can't even contemplate a human feeling. And it, it kind of snaps him back into which we get to do later. It's like, yeah, great. He's all prepped up and ready for Wrath of Khan and all that. But it, it took this film and it was like I, I don't I think that they were trying to say is we're not going to make this too easy for you people. We're not going to make this it's like, hey, everybody, let's get back together. You know, it's like years ago when they when when Burt Ward was saying, yeah, when they, when they do the new uh, Tim Burton movie, it should have been us, and we should have just run into the closet and jumped out with our with our bat costumes ready to go back in action. And people don't want to see that shit. No, you know, yeah, they, that, they, that, that that shows time had long since passed, yeah. and that attitude toward the material had long since passed. Right, and, and people were tired of it. And I think, in the, in a way, this movie is is more mature than any of the other Star Trek films. I mean, all of them, including the the later ones, the, the Generation, Chris Pine, and all that. Um, I don't know. This I would is, argue. Is, I would is, argue that uh, there are there are incredibly mature things within both two and six because both of those of films, course there are but they're handled well, no, 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 in be, be, but there, the, but there there's the we're talking about uh especially in uh well both in both two and six we get these conversations between mccoy and kirk mm-hmm. where they're talking about the fact that they're older and their aspirations and what they you know the the, the reality based way of looking at their past uh-huh. and, th- and it's those things that that, that kind of self-reflective thing that is there in both two and six that i think is absolutely fascinating because three and four don't really have time for that they're they're on a clock and and and, and things are ticking so yeah, there's yeah. not that time to be re- uh, self-reflective about uh, the past or anything else yeah i don't and really like, want to run down a rabbit hole with the other films but i think three's got one scene in it that really shows something you know, but we'll talk about that. Okay, we'll talk about that later. We'll talk about but that later. Same- I, I I get what you're saying, but there is something sort of almost more. I, you know, look, I'm not going to sit here and 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 start on a thing about two, four, two, three, four, and six, five. I don't even talk about. But we will mm-hmm. do an episode, and I'll sink my fucking fangs. But <laughs> but uh, there are things in Wrath of Khan very quickly that are a freaking amazing. Yeah, uh, in terms of character development, uh, six has got that too. Uh, four's got one. Uh, three's got one scene in it that just you know I always or two scenes in it that just are are are, well, are shocking. Let's let's talk about let's talk about the what I would consider to be the 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 defaults 
as far as character development in uh, this movie, in the motion picture. Okay. And mm-hmm. I'll say that there are, uh, there is an arc for Captain Kirk, and I like it. Okay? Yes. Mm-hmm. There is definitely an arc for Spock. I think mm-hmm. that's only one of the few ways they were able to wrangle Nimoy to actually be in the damn film is like give him mm-hmm. something to freaking do. Right. Um, um, there is no arc for, for Bones, but he don't need an arc. This ain't his story. We, you yeah, know, yeah. Th- th- that's not the problem. Yeah. The thing is, the finale of the story, the mm-hmm. wrap up of the story kind of is no. Well, let's I'll put it. I'll put it this way. It's not as strong as it needs to be because both of the characters who are quote unquote sacrificing themselves mm-hmm. are brand new characters that we don't have at that point, 10, pl- 10 plus years of emotional investment in they're, Right. They're, right. But still, so, you know, the episode with the gas cloud, that's draining people of their blood. That guy was kind of like the same thing as a Decker as it wasn't his name Decker. I know. I know. No, no. But well, you know what I'm that, saying? One of the things that this movie does not, uh, and, and it's kind of a surprise every time I come back to this film, it, it doesn't actually point out that the Decker character is the son of the William Wyndham character. From now, I've the heard Doomsday that before. Machine. Is that proven? Is that well, no, an that's actual what fact? It, that's what he was supposed to be. It just never ended up being, being, uh, set on uh, the film. Was it set, set in the in book the film, or yeah. the script or something? I always yeah. wondered about that. I'd heard it. Oh, he's, he's, he's Will Decker's kid. I'm like, is that, is that true? Are we, are we certain of that? Or is that just a coincidence of the names? Because sometimes you see names that are, you know, they use the same name. And no, the, the original, the original idea was for him to be the son of that, you know, that now, you know, now dead starship captain. Yeah. And they were going to actually, there in some earlier drafts, some earlier ideas, that would be one of the reasons why Kirk felt a kind of fatherly duty to shepherd him through and, and why he felt kind of proud that it was this particular guy who was going to be right. taking over the Enterprise right? Uh, because of that connection. I, I didn't have a problem with it so much. I wasn't that enamored with Ilya. I think watching it now in the director's cut, I appreciate the two characters more. To me, they were the people that we built up over two hours so that they could be the ones that sacrificed themselves. But in a way, did they sacrifice themselves? Yeah, or, didn't, exactly. or did they become Ilya. even more? That's what's beautiful about yeah. this movie is at the end, they have some kind of ultimate bizarre ass sex connection thing and 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 everything's cool and i'm like what science fiction movie ends ends with such a positive ending usually some something's got to get blown up yeah something's got to do this and something's got to do that this movie did not do that they said the whole function of this movie is to is to let this anti feeling entity know how to feel and that completely released it i thought it was fairly brilliant myself you know and people compare it to nomad it's going around sterilizing stuff it's like okay there's a little bit of that in there i agree with it there but is, to sit there, there and is. say but to sit there and say it's a ripoff completely of the nomad episode is completely wrong i don't no, agree. but it's it is it is an uncomfortably similar story when you're talking about uh, a group of at that especially at that point less than 90 stories you know <laughs> Well, no, a hundred and something because of the cartoons too. And I will, I do oh, well, use okay, cartoons right. as if canon. You, you, well, no, if you're, you, you're right, if you that you, you're right, uh, if, I would include the twenty-two episodes of the animated series as well. So yeah, all there was right, twenty-two. Right. God, that's not very many. Yeah, there were only twenty-two, but they were good. Not um, all of them were good. Two or three of them were. There's really a good. few of them. Yeah, I went back. I've got the box set. I'm gonna you know, trade it out for the Blu-ray soon. There's a couple of them. I'm gonna go. Eh, eh, maybe not. 
but yeah, yeah. there's still a lot of good ones. Um, so I want to go ahead and treat myself here since I'm on your show and I'm taking uh -oh. over the mic. I want to talk about a few things about this movie that fucking make me happy. Can I do oh, that? Thank God. I was afraid you were about to take your pants off. Okay, go ahead. Well, they've been off. So uh, anyway, oh, and by the way, everybody, we're in the same room. So uh, <laughs> no, no, we're not. No, forget it. Quit drooling, Rodney. All right. So um, okay, start about, okay, first off, one of the greatest freaking scores in movie history. Oh, I yeah. don't give a damn. That is that I, Jerry Goldsmith is my favorite. Uh, I mean, there's a, I love them. Bernard Herrmann and 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 John Barry and and John Williams and blah, 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 and all these other guys. But to me, I think Jerry in, inches them out because I'm sort of an action adventure sort of guy. But Star Trek: The Motion Picture is a superb soundtrack. I mean, all the way through, very experimental, using a flange on a guitar for V'ger, mm -hmm. just all these beautiful themes. Robert Weiss apparently pushed him a bit. The whole you know, moving around the Enterprise sequence. I heard the other version of the music and it just wasn't there. And Jerry goes, you know, Robert told me to go back in. He goes, it was missing something. And he finally got it. And so oh, well, thank I, goodness I for that. But okay, Robert I, Weiss, I will, having will, done Sound I, and Music and West Side Story, probably had the background to, to spot that something wasn't right. Go ahead. Well, not only that, I think Jerry Goldsmith, I agree with you. Jerry Goldsmith was a freaking genius. Oh, uh, he was so he good. Has done, he has done music for movies that I think are garbage, but I, yeah. think his, but I own his score for them. The Swarm. The Swarm. What, the, a, what the, a movie. The one but, I always go to is the god-awful 1999 uh, film of The Mummy, uh, which I think is an abysmal movie, but Gold, but Gold, Goldsmith's score is amazing. Yeah. I I, I, um, I I mean, I own a lot of Jerry Goldsmith stuff, and I'll buy mm -hmm. it. If it's good, even if the movie stinks, I'll buy it. So, okay, that's well, one thing. It, let's put it this way. I, at, a, at an early age in my development of being a fan of film music, I suddenly realized that the guy who made the atonal and fascinating score for Planet of the Apes yeah. was the same guy who made the incredible score for The Omen. And I was like, uh, that's the same yeah. guy? Yeah, yeah. This guy? My Holy first thing shit. where I really knew who he was, and I didn't know who he was. I didn't know that he was the one that did the whale episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. You know that. Oh yeah, he was working on stuff way back even before that. And then he does uh, one of the first soundtracks where I bought it and actually learned his name was Logan's Run. Mm -hmm. uh, great soundtrack. So anyway, I love him. I think his music is superb in this movie. Well, uh, let's, we've not, got let's point out to people that they'll. I mean, a lot of latter day Trek fans whose experience with Star Trek kind of started with the Next Generation. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't even realize that the theme, the theme for the oh next gosh. generation, is the theme from Star Trek: The Motion That always kind of pissed me off because uh, you know it was already an established Star Trek thing for something else, and then Next Generation grabbed it. And I'm like, I was, I remember I was watching first episode first night it came on, and they played that theme, and I'm like, oh my god, they ripped off, they took the one from Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Why didn't they just write a new theme so it's separate? But whatever, that's a yeah, that's an aside. Don't ask for that. Don't ask for that too often, or you end up. With well, I will say this: Enterprise. having said that, I'm in the middle of. Uh, oh yeah, that stunk. Uh, you know some, you know some 
guy strumming a guitar. Uh, I will say this, the uh, new uh, season of Picard, which everybody's been raving about, they deserve to be raving about it. It's excellent. And they do bring in the Jerry Goldsmith theme once again. But enough Ooh. of that. So um, I highly recommend first two seasons. Eh, they were okay. But the I still haven't third, seen the second. I still haven't seen the second season. The I'm third sure season is to. really, I, I get the feeling if it if it ends as good as it's going, and it ends, I think, Thursday night this week, if Star Trek Picard season three is as good, ends as good as it's been, it'll be considered applauded and loved by the fans massively from now on. It'll, it, it might move into a, you know, Wrath of Khan, Star Trek six mode. That's mm. how, that's how well done it is. So anyway, of course, now that I've told you that you go, Mark. So anyway, uh, <laughs> next to, okay. The, sh the movie starts off with this beautiful, these three Klingon ships. We see Klingons that are different for the first time with those nubs running up there, their spines running up yep, through yep. in between their eyes. I loved that. I was blown away. The The ship comes up and it rolls on the front part of the spaceship. And then and then you get behind it as it's heading towards V'ger. That's well, let's, beautiful. Let's, let's, pre let's pause for just a moment. Okay. To thank God the Internet didn't exist in 1979 because we'd have been we'd have had no end of fanboy bullshit crying about the fact that well it's not what Klingons look like. Oh they had it anyway. It's still people were it was no internet but people still bitched about it. They finally started getting more used to it. Star Trek 3 uh, did a little bit better and then when Next Generation came along and they slowly used it to perfect Worf and other Klingons it finally became accepted. At first man people hated that and I thought it was pretty cool. It's like hey they got more money. They can make these things look different. So I love that that whole sequence with the flanger going on the guitar and the and the V'gers firing back at the Klingons and basically digitizing them. I thought that was fantastic. Well, that combat theme that Goldsmith has during that it's amazing. It's yeah, everybody's tried to mimic that since then and or, or do some variation of it. It's like, nah, nobody's gonna beat that. Another thing I love is when they um, uh, they okay they they jump to that space station that says, "Hey, 
where's the, what's this thing doing? It's attacking stuff, and where's it headed towards Earth? That was mm-hmm. that was kind of cool. Uh, we jumped to Vulcan, where 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 Spock is hearing these these voices from way out in space, and is trying to finish up his schooling for the Kolinar, which is the purging of all emotions. I love in the new version they did such a beautiful job with the planet surface. Yes. It's gorgeous. The giant statues, uh, the the lava, and everything. Uh, and the red tinted to the filter. I remember that even when I first saw it. Um, uh, you know, and then we see our first uh, moment of Admiral Kirk when the when the, we see San Francisco and the shuttle lands and he gets out. Man, he looks good. And that uniform, I actually like. There's some of them in the film. People bitch about it looking too much like Space 1999 or something. But but Shatner gets two or three really good outfits in that one. And that's one of them with that big white front to it and the gray on the sides. Yeah. And he's looking. I heard he really busted his ass to, to get his weight down and get his stomach flat. Because mm-hmm. I guess everybody yeah. in the film, that that's, that's like next generation outfits. Everybody's got to be trim or you look like a dupe. You know, <laughs> you look yeah, you look terrible if you don't. Yeah, yeah. but but Shatner looked fantastic. Uh, I'm gonna say what, something what is, here what is too. your opinion? I gotta ask this question. Shatner okay. Shatner looks good physically, but yeah. I gotta say, not his best toupee. Uh, it's a little it's a it's a little too high on the forehead. It's a little too high. maybe so, but Shatner looks so good. You know, uh, I'd I'd tell you Rodney, there's Shatner over there, go suck his dick. So that's what that's what I do. So, and you, would. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm not into ninety plus year old men. I'm just not. I'm sorry. He's ninety. Oh, I didn't know that. He's ninety two. Uh, I know that. It's a fucking joke. <laughs> you freaking loon. So here's here's something that's gonna piss off some people, but I just don't care. Okay. First off, Goldsmith, his music jumps from thing to thing. And one of the things that the special effects guys like uh, Doctorman and some of their guys, Darren, who's a friend of ours, by the way, Darren, let's give a shout out to Darren Doctorman, who we know mm-hmm. from Wonderfest. Yes. They did a great job. One of the things they said is it was amazing to watch Robert Wise when they were doing the restoration in his music and his ability at editing the way he almost did cutting in 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 the director's cut that was like his belief in music and that he was way more musically talented, but everything would change. Like there was a scene where they switched to the space station around earth that would later be used in wrath of Khan. I freaking love that thing. I think it is so cool looking, so futuristic. And the first time I saw it, I thought that is so cool then. And, and of course in the director's cut, they digitally put the travel pod on there that Kirk and Scotty drive over. It's never been on there before. They added it. Well, I've got to say that to this day, I think the, one of the weakest visuals in the movie uh-huh. is that Scott, uh, the Scott and um, and Kirk look like they're being projected onto the front of the freaking shuttle. It doesn't look right. Well, you can say that. No, I, I, I was shocked when I saw, I thought that looked so good. You and I are absolutely diametrically opposed on that. They did use a 16 millimeter projector plugged into the back of the spaceship, the pod that that went over there and they had a, a sheet of, 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 uh, 
screen in front of the glass or behind the glass of the spaceship and they projected their images on it i thought it was you, you might it, it, it doesn't have any depth it doesn't look right well i'm going to tell you something you're you're saying that with modern special effects eyes but i'm going to tell you in 19 no, i'm saying i'm saying 79 that, i'm saying that every time i've ever seen this movie across my entire life wow. it's always been it's I always was, been the, the one standout little weak visual no and it's, i don't and it's, agree and with and that at all situ- and it's situated in the big, far too long. Let's fly around the. There is nothing effect. now. Now, okay, let me roll up my goddamn sleeves here. <laughs> there is that is a fucking amazing piece. Fuck you. Fuck everybody you've ever it's known. Go long. drive your car. No, it's not. It is. It's absolute. No, it's beautiful. It is. It no, is the score. So it, ama- the, the, don't get me wrong. The special effects are beautiful. The score is beautiful. I sat there it with my jaw the, open. It stops it, the movie dead in its tracks. Start, the Enterprise is the single coolest looking spaceship in the history of science fiction. Nothing in Star Wars was that cool. There's nothing in the original Star Wars movie that comes anywhere close to the bizarre abstractness of the Enterprise. When they started uh, uh, showing I'll that, agree, I'll agree with that. I yeah. sat there. Most of the people that I was sitting—I mean, everybody I was sitting with—there was one or two people in front of me bitching about it or something like that. But I'm like, this is so fucking cool, and they float around it, and it is amazing. The music is beautiful. Kirk is returning home, and we get to see this like flying around Tara for for what's well, her face. What's, I, what, here, here's the thing: you're reminding me of that I that I don't want to I don't want to get past this before we go ahead and bring this up because I, I, I want it to be part of the conversation is that mm-hmm. um, especially now the the version of the film that we have now mm-hmm. um, the special effects are amazing they and, and they, they they were always good but we know they look better now because did they you hear were, did you hear um, what happened oh yeah I know I know exactly what happened I know I know I know what they did but here's the here's the thing that is it points to uh, the weakness or weaknesses of the film is that because of that shitty timeline that they had to follow, they started the damn movie without a finished script. They were writing and rewriting the thing constantly while they were already in production. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's kind of amazing that the film holds together as well as it does Mm -hmm. because of that. And that to me is, is kind of part of the beautiful alchemy of filmmaking in that, there are films that I know of that went through massive alterations during production. Right. And uh, when you sometimes when you find out about it, you're stunned because it seems like such a coherent, linear work that you can hardly believe that, you know, halfway through the shooting schedule, they completely rewrote the entire end of the story. Sure. Or something or something like that. Yeah. Whereas in this case, everybody knew that they were screwed. There's there was not a single actor on the set that didn't have to reference what was the color today, trying to figure out what pages they were supposed to be actually playing off of. Right. And that is usually deadly for a film production. Well, but, I mean, you hear about it with The Shining. Uh, you definitely heard about it with Casablanca. They were writing up until the last minute. Uh, yeah, yeah. There are instances where a smart writer who's under pressure actually performs better than one that's lackadaisical. Um, well, it's, I, it's also a, a good a good example sometimes is that while under the heat of those lights and everything is in motion and the pressure is on, sometimes and your somebody sphincter, comes up and with your not, sphincter is contracted like oh, the yeah, major orifice. But but somebody somewhere who has a different perspective on it blurts something out and suddenly, holy shit, no, that's the best way to go. Yeah. But it's something that would never have occurred. 
until you're in the situation yeah. and you're under the gun. You've got to get thinking it outside of the box thing. Somebody's got another idea. They throw it out there. They throw it against the wall and see what sticks. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's one of those where um, uh, you. I, I think in the case of this, this that that works. Um, I want to. I want to. Uh, when it comes oh, to the oh, thing, oh. one one other thing that I, I did, I'm not sure. sure if you were aware of it. You probably are because you're such a huge fan of this guy. I'm about to mention, but um, uh, early on in the process, when they were still thinking about producing Planet of the Titans, uh, uh-huh. uh, d- uh, <laughs> they hired. Ken Adam, the famous production oh, designer. Oh, I know exactly. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, you know I, I'm Ken a Adam massive is. fan. Yes, yeah. Shoot, yeah. We, James Bond, dude. Didn't we do, but here's, did we do but a here's James the thing. Bond? I can't remember. Go ahead. Uh, the, the quote from Ken Adam is that uh, this is in uh, 76. He says, I was approached by Gina Roddenberry, and we got, got along like a house on fire, and he was employed to design the film. So Ken Adam hired uh, Ralph McQuarrie, uh-huh. fresh off Star Wars, Mm-hmm. The film hadn't even been that hadn't even been edited yet. Yeah, and they worked on designs for planets and planetary and asteroid bases, a black mm. hole shroud, a crystalline superbrain, and all these different things that were going to be in Planet of the Titans. And right. they also came up with new concepts for the way the interior of the Enterprise would look. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, these are things that Adam would then later revisit and revise when they made Moonraker a few years later. Right. Ah, uh, right. Right. So the. Uh, the the interiors those big especially those big rooms where they gather where the entire crew gathers right. to be told about what they're 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 going to have to go do sure uh, as soon as, as soon as I realized oh shit this is taken from a Ken Adam design it suddenly all clicked into place and I'm like ah yes okay here we go yeah. this is you know you only live twice size shit so that's that's they got that's everybody exactly. he got everybody on the he got the entire crew on the uh, what was it the uh, recreation deck or something I can't remember what it was I think uh-huh. it is a recreation deck because they showed those starships on those on those panels mm-hmm. uh, uh, up against the wall but yeah huh but yes yeah, like so when planet of the uh, planet of the Titans got shelved a lot of that stuff got uh, got put in mothballs but still those concepts were being used when they design you know when they designed those in, those enterprise interiors and like I say it kind of shows but it's not it, it's it would be incorrect to say that Ken Adam worked on Star Trek the motion picture it's just right. that the, the gestation period for the whole project was so damn long sounds like there was a little of bit people. of Ken Adams radioactivity sort of affected yeah. it a little bit well that's yeah. the other thing too when you talk about the enterprise you got to realize something mr smarty pants <laughs> is that is that and that's the worst thing I'm going to say about you tonight. I'm uh, sure it is. Yes. Didn't I just tell you to take a car and drive it over a cliff with your opinion? <laughs> you, no, but you said you've said worse. Oh, worse. I know. Yeah, way worse. Uh, the thing is, you you have to understand there was two things going on there. One, we were seeing the Enterprise finally in a colossal state. That's what yeah. I love about this movie. Things are freaking huge. None of the special effects in any of the other Star Trek films after that come up to that moment. At all no, uh, yeah, two, agree, two, four, five, six. There, everything looks ILM. Let's let's do this one notch above a television show. I've always been kind of yeah. pissed off about that. It's like, well, Star Trek well, films was, are still being bu- made. It was a budgetary thing. It was a budgetary. It thing was a cheapness films. thing. It, Paramount's well, always it, been it, assholes ca- about Star Trek. I wouldn't call it a cheapness thing. Paramount fucked themselves so badly with this first film as far as the budget was concerned that the only way Wrath of Khan or any of those other films got made were that they wanted a guarantee that they were going to turn a profit 
And so they they kept the they 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 worked hard to keep the the screws tight on that damn budget. Yeah, but going from going from going from a you know yes, the budget on this film went crazy because of bizarre crap that happened, and restarting and rebooting. There was an entire bizarre part where Spock and Kirk go in, and there's this like they're attacked by little mechanical QB looking sort of things or something yeah. that all got scrapped, but. But you look at those other films. I mean, going from the budget that that first film had, and it made a hundred and what forty some million bucks, so it wasn't like it tanked. It did not tank. So that's that's that people go. Well, it was uh, some guy on Facebook the other day was going. It was a commercial flop. No, it wasn't. That movie was not a commercial flop. It no, made it money. Was a cri- it was a critical flop, but it was not a commercial flop. It was a critical flop. flop. But it did. And but this is the important this is the important f- thing to remember. Mm-hmm. It underperformed. It underperformed given the, the, the fucking fiasco of who they had hired first. If you right. had gotten rid of those pieces of shit who started it and couldn't finish the people that did the 7-Up commercials, mm-hmm. you would have had a movie that probably came in for $10 million bucks less and would have been easily a hit at $145 million. But you go from that and you drop Star Trek Wrath of Khan drops down to $12 million bucks as a budget and the... Uh, and they're using clips and props and stuff from the earlier film. And I don't mind them. Of course, they're going to use the bridge again. Oh, of but, course. But they use the space station flipped upside down. I hate that. I know people like nowadays, the only way you can find that is in that form of the regular space station, which is even filmed cheaply. I mean, they finally had to get on one year. They finally got on to ILM for overcharging them for, for some of these films. But, but this movie is the Star Trek film that things look colossal. You get a sense of the immensity of the enterprise. I wanted to see that ship go around. I wanted, this is, this is the magic of, and and we we haven't mentioned this aspect of the film, Mm -hmm. which I think is important. Yeah. This is a television show that has suddenly reached the point where it is on the big screen. Yeah. I got to tell you, people, that's a first. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. There was that doesn't happen. Yeah. That was that was especially in our country. It might have happened in other countries like maybe Japan or something. But the United States did not take television shows. They did not do a giant, you know, $15 million version of Bewitched. They didn't do, uh, you know, uh, I Love Lucy. I mean, all that stuff. Star Trek was the first one to go. We are going from a, you know, how many how many thousands of dollars was an episode? 30,000, 80,000? I, I don't remember, was, yeah. But, but, but to go to this... But yeah, I mean, so I'm one of those that when that scene comes up with them going around the ship, uh, going around the ship in the pod, I eat it up. It's like watching 2001 A Space Odyssey. I'm there for the ride. I'm there for the experience and I get the payoff. I don't think it's too slow, but okay, let's go to the next thing that I absolutely love. Okay. Uh, let's see. Okay. I already went past. I'm, I'm looking at my notes here. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, one thing I wanted to say about uh, that scene and also scenes and a lot of scenes in the movie. Of uh, course, uh, I was listening to the direct, uh, the the special effects commentary. They lucked out. They went over to Paramount to the archives and found the original filming without the separations, without where they where they fuse it all together and it becomes more. It, it works, but it's blurry. You know, yeah, because with the it, Enterprise, it, it, it degrades each into individual piece as it they didn't come degrade. Yeah. What we're seeing is the individual shots now cut out and placed in digitally. 
Oh, nice. That it's sweet, man. It's sweet. So um, let's see. Okay, so as we know, Kirk gets on the ship, tells Decker he's being you know kicked in the rear end. We got the transporter sequence with them screaming in the beams. I love the transporters in that movie. I think that's the coolest looking transporter in any Star Trek. Is oh, that- I, th- I love that the, the the change in the look of the beam itself is fantastic. Well, what they did is uh, they, they had a lot. They had Jess- Jessica von Puckhammer was uh, 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 a uh, what do you call it when you um, you help out thought process wise? I'm, I'm, oh, I'm a creative old. consultant. Creative consultant Isaac Asimov. He was the one that uh, came up with some sequences in the film, or at least parts of them. But one of the things was in this version, the Enterprise. You beam in. There's also an extra radioactive beam on the outside that destroys any contaminants you might have on you, or you are bringing back from a planet surface or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that was cool. Then they show the Epsilon station gets absorbed. That's fine. Uh, when the Enterprise leaves the dock and goes past Jupiter and all that stuff, or they goes past that sunrise, that's beautiful. That was that was one thing that they they worked on. I thought it was interesting that uh, this is the first time that I rem- that I can think of where they explain that in general they try not to go into warp while inside a solar system. Yeah, maybe um, maybe things are too yeah. packed in. Maybe they're just too well, tight. That's just, yeah, that's just it. I just wonder. Uh, I've never. Uh, I don't have an objection to it at all. I just think it's interesting because you're immediately your mind goes to the possibility of needing to be in a in a space where there's not a possibility of micro asteroids or something like that yeah. before you enter. Well, that's the, the question. In, I mean, if you if you're flying past Saturn and you kick into warp and one of those, you know. Uh, you know, some isn't there supposed to be like some big meteor bits or something in between some of the planets out there? I, I thought that there yeah, was. Yeah, and see, that, that's what I wonder about um, the the reasoning on that. And I thought thought that was interesting. And of course, the um, well, what do you what do you think about the the wormhole sequence? Oh my God! All right, that's I just looking at the notes. This is my single favorite scene in this movie. It is it my single. Kind of, it does kind of find a way to to touch on many different things that are kind of hang over the rest of the film. What was it, Mr. Decker? Wormhole. Get us back on impulse power. Full of Earth. Negative helm control, cast. Go on reverse on impulse power. Subspace frequencies jam, sir. Wormhole effect. Negative control. The nurse delay will continue 22.5 seconds before forward velocity slows to sublight speed. Unidentified small object has been put into the wormhole with our captain directly ahead. Orders are full. Optic on viewer. The manual override on help. No manual response, sir. Navigation of effect is coming up, sir. Wormhole distortion has overloaded the main power systems. Navigation of effect is inoperative, Captain. Direction of control also inoperative. Time to impact. 20 seconds. Mr. Chekhov, stand by our phasers. 
This is my single favorite scene in the whole movie. Okay. I have played it over and over again. I'll, I'll have the movie on. When I'm done watching it, I'll go back to it. I'll watch it two, three, four times. I've watched it on the big screen. I've watched it. I showed my, when the uh, director's cut came out, and I didn't have a copy of the 4K of it yet. I had the uh, – it was on uh, the Paramount channel. And my kids, I said, I told, I sat my kids down. They had seen the movie before, but I said, nothing is more like science fiction than this next moment you're going to watch. And that is, and I'm paraphrasing, but Isaac Asimov, I remember years ago when he was talking about Star Trek, said, science fiction, the definition of it is, is man, man dealing with changes in technology. Well, in this case, there is no antagonist. There is no villain in this moment. Correct. It is the fact that they are trying to get the hell out of the galaxy as fast as they can for an emergency situation. And they are being and Kirk is being told there is an imbalance there might be an imbalance in the engines, and then we get this great sequence. There's no villain, there's no there's no bad guy, there's no nothing. It is just a problem with man dealing with his own technology. Right. And the ship starts up. It's gorgeous watching that thing go into warp. It, it's it's almost like they had taken the uh, opening credits to Superman the movie and then applied it to an object. You know that stretching effect. Mm-hmm. And I remember was seeing that. I was like, oh my god, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Well. They're going along, and all of a sudden, the wormhole opens up due to the engine imbalance, and they're flying through this bizarre orange thing. It's making a noise, almost like a little cheap razor, like a like a, a beard shaver, you know, uh, electric razor. And I was blown away. I said, "This is incredible. This is what science fiction is to me. It's like 2001. It's like Interstellar. It's like you know, Contact. It's like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Real science fiction movies." you know mm-hmm. not you know space opera uh, i was blown away by it i love it uh, and i i cannot stress how much i love it and i've actually posted i don't know if i've posted actual footage from it on facebook but i've i've taken photographs off the screen and posted them with the see, scene where you see that colossal enterprise which still looks huge with the light streaks pouring off of the windows and everything with that wormhole wrapped around it and they're flying down that tunnel I think it's absolutely spectacular. I it, the, the the whole the whole um, uh, uh, ticket fee that I paid to watch it that night would have been satisfied by that one moment. I think it's a fun. I think it's a fun sequence because it does show that they are pushing too hard to get the Enterprise to this thing. They're pushing too hard, and it's it's Kirk who has to learn a lesson there which is not only the lesson that he learns that he didn't realize that the order he gave was go- was was going to be an abject failure um, oh talking about yeah the, there, what, what, for for the audience there's a uh, 
I don't know how it worked. I don't an, know an astro- about an, it, but there's a, there's a meteor or an asteroid in the center of the wormhole between their engine imbalance that created a focal point that created the wormhole. Does that sound right? Right, Is and essentially right? this asteroid gets drawn into the uh, the wormhole with them, and they have to they have to find a way to deal with it, or if they can't get out of the wormhole fast enough, they're going to collide with it. And so uh-huh. that the one of the reasons the sequence is in the in the film is to demonstrate that Kirk is out of his element, whether he realizes it or not. This is the scene where he realizes that he has screwed up and could have gotten them all killed. So that's the function of it within the structure of the story. What happens is is Kirk told Decker that he's taking his position and that he's going to have to, you know, double a science officer and stuff like that, and that he'll also, if you know the ship better than me, but it gets evident that Kirk gets egg on his face when we find out that the only way to destroy that asteroid is to fire a photon torpedo instead of using phasers, which would have channeled through the engines, would not have worked, and they would have been killed. So Kirk then takes Decker back to his office where he thinks he's going to chew him out and turns out, in fact, hey, I got to take this one. I did wrong, but I did put the right guy in the right position to tell me I did wrong. And that's and he and, and he has to learn that lesson, which is this yeah. guy is not Spock. He would have expected Spock to be able to verbally slap him down and yeah. take and fix his screw up. And he would have accepted it. It wouldn't have been any big deal. And that is the moment when Kirk realizes he has to accept Decker in a in a almost in an almost similar position for being his backstop, for being someone who is going to get in his face and has to. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And I think I think that's what that to me. I mean, don't get me wrong. Visually, it's 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 interesting. It's 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 a it's something we've not seen in Star Trek before, and uh, so that so that's kind of cool. But at the same time. I love well, it's disturbing fact. for the regular fans. Kirk never fucked up in the old show. I mean, if he did, it was minimal. But but what we're what we're seeing here is a guy who really is trying to get back into some. That's the uncomfortableness right. of this movie. Is a guy trying to go back, where well, you can call it recapturing past glories or whatever, mm-hmm. just wanting to get back out in the field again. Uh, when when Decker and McCoy and him go into Kirk's quarters which I'm assuming he threw Decker out of when he took over his job. Yeah. He, uh, he, 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 does, he does look at it and he sees the truth of it. And he goes, I hope you'll nursemaid me through these trying times or whatever. And Decker goes, yes, sir. So, but the, and that, that is, the, that is enough. one of the great things about the way the film plays out, which is one of the reasons I was going to, one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up and play it as a touchstone. in what we what we discuss here is that, this is the kind of thing that carries through that does not point to a haphazardly, constantly rewritten script because right. we then see Kirk repeatedly for the rest of the film encouraging Deckard to get in his face and give him a contrary opinion. Yeah. In other words, not yeah. only did he take it on board, realize he had fucked up and thank him for it, he wants that and he knows he needs that and the yeah. the wounded pride he felt on the bridge went during the the wormhole sequence is something he had to realize he was wrong to even feel it was completely wrong to even have that emotion because this is not a man who is attempting to 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 insult or degrade or denigrate him in any way shape or form he just knows what he's doing and i need to i need to accept that yeah it is one of those things that by the end of the film, 
Kirk has learned that lesson and at the same time still knows that he's capable of being the guy out there to deal with unknowns. Yeah. I mean, but you're right. I mean, this is the this is the weirdness of it that, that that put fans a little bit on edge at the time. It's sort of like, well, why is Kirk being a jerk and why is Spock emotional? It's like, hey, it's been ten years. People change. You know. Well, it's not only that. that, that that's glossing over of, of several moments that you can point to in the original series where, from one perspective or another, Kirk is a jerk. Mm. Uh, don't get me wrong. That was the brilliance yeah. of the show. That was the drama of the show, like the episode where Kirk, you know, McCoy looks at Kirk and goes, how can you be so obsessed? And Kirk goes, obsessed. Then it was the episode was Obsession, where he wants to kill that blood-drinking gas cloud. Mm-hmm. People weren't perfect on Star Trek. Uh, in this case... It's a guy trying to fit himself, an older man fitting himself back into a 35-year-old's universe. He Early on in the story, he describes himself as rusty. And the thing is, yeah. the way he says it and the look on his face makes you realize that the character doesn't really believe that that matters. And it's the wormhole sequence and the, the fallout from it that makes him realize, no, I, that that wasn't just bullshit. That's true. Yeah. I need to. And I, I need to accept it. So, Yeah. I'm still so enamored with that that whole wormhole scene. I mean, to me, that's great science. I mean, I remember being a little, little, little kid and seeing Fantastic Voyage for the first time mm-hmm. in 67 or 66, whenever it came out or whatever. And that was the same kind of feeling where somebody's showing you something. It isn't necessarily... Uh, uh, violent or or negative, or there isn't a guy pointing a gun at you or a villain or something. It's just a situation that is so wild that you've gotten yourself into, and that to me is more science fictiony than than Star Wars. I I find Star Wars to be sort of, you know, and I I'm I'm I, you know to me I I love real science fiction movies. I love all kinds of movies, and I, I there's a lot of Star Wars that I love. Oh yeah, but but. I still think that we need more science fiction movies like 2001, this Interstellar, where the concept is so heady that you don't necessarily have the usual tra- trappings like car chases or laser blasts or gunfights or something like that. I mean, I still watch plenty of that stuff, but you, you know what I'm saying? Of course, because the, where the if thing you go is, back and I, I, I'm, I'm still, I'm still so glad that there are filmmakers out there, and there were never a lot of them at any one time. Let's. Let's be very clear about that. Uh, when Kubrick is making something like 2001, it's not like there were five other people standing behind him making those same kinds of films, especially not at his technical craft craft level or his budget levels. But I'm glad that we do still get the occasional filmmaker who, regardless of what you think about their individual films, are being given the amount of leeway that someone like Kubrick was given to craft something that really does feel like you're not going... It's 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 so heady. It's so uh, kind of... Uh, it, it, it is the kind of thing that you kind of have to grasp at while it's in motion because it is a movie. You have to kind of wrestle with it, trying to keep it all in your head or trying to understand exactly what you're being shown or told. And it, yeah. you, you mentioned Interstellar, and it is that particular filmmaker who I, I'm, I'm very pleased that even when making uh, a science fiction uh, film that I would ref- I would refer to as an action movie, uh, a science fiction mm-hmm. action movie uh, along the lines of uh, Tenet, where right. it is difficult to grasp the entire way in which the story is unfolding, and that is part of 
what makes it fascinating. To, to, to that there is a filmmaker working at that level out there today who is not afraid to make it a little difficult for you to latch on to is is fantastic because I like it when I you can kind of get lost in the action and the, and the fun and the pulpy nature of a story, but when someone is doing some of those things, but at the same time using them to craft something that is not necessarily deeper. That's not the point of what he's making. That's not what Nolan's mm-hmm. trying to do. He's not trying to be mm-hmm. particularly deep, except in certain in certain ideas that kind of play out over the over the course of an entire film. He's not trying to be deep in his presentation, but the fact that mm-hmm. he's using those skills to make something that is a little bit hard to get your arms around, especially on first viewing. First viewing. I'll tell you what, one of them that really got to me, that altered me, no pun, (laughs) I can't believe I used that word. (laughs) Uh, One of them that got me the first time I ever saw it, and I've been a massive fan of it ever since, was Ken Russell's Altered States. Certainly, certainly. The first time I watched it, I was like, what the hell did I just see? But I loved it. Yeah. Well, see, that's another instance where I wonder what my reaction would have been if my first viewing of it had been on, on the big screen instead of how I first caught it, which was on uh, cable, you know, was yeah. on HBO, uh, and I, you yeah. know, I've loved it from the first time I saw it, but it is yeah. so filled with so it's so filled with different ideas, and it comes at its material in such an odd way, but it mm-hmm. is still just so death-defyingly adamant about communicating its story effectively. Yeah. And it, well, another one I really liked was um, uh, Bob Zemecki's Contact. Yeah. Well, I, I, think, don't, I don't like Contact. I think that it's one of the moments where really? I, Oh, no, no, no. I think that it is one of the most obnoxiously directed films in the history of time. Really? Nah, I like that one. No, to me, that, no, to that, me that, it's that is, one that of those... That is a film constructed... Uh, that is a film that is it's one of the first times I realized that I needed to that somebody needed to intervene with Bob Zemeckis and tell him to stop playing with fucking camera technology because it got really, really goddamned irritating. Uh, wow, I don't even know what you're talking about. The camera. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. There's a, the, the moment that broke the movie for me. I, I had already started. There had already been a couple of moments in the film where I was like, "What the fuck is he doing here? Drawing attention to something that doesn't need to be drawn attention to." Uh, but the one that broke me was there's a sequence when where it's a flashback to the uh, the the child uh, version of uh, Jodie Foster's of, character. Of Jodie Foster, right? And the right, camera. Right. Uh, for some reason, he decided it was going to be just sheer genius to uh, pretend that this was all one single shot where the camera follows her uh, from outside into the house, up the stairs, into the bathroom, and then into the mirror in a way that there's no way to watch the scene and and not go, oh, this is just a camera trick because we've gone through a door and now we're inside the mirror looking back at her all in what's supposed to be viewed by us as a seamless, unedited thing. And it's like, guess what? Now I'm not thinking about the emotional state of the character. I'm thinking, why are you showing off your big goddamn camera dick, you dumb shit? Well, here's my question. How come I watched that same scene and never thought about it? You sure you just weren't having a bad day? I mean, no, really. That whole, okay, that, let's go there's on. so that. many things about I contact that. that irritate the Oh, yeah. Okay, first, first of all, I was convinced convinced at a certain point that uh, Matthew McConaughey's character was uh-huh. some kind of fucking ghost or something because the way the film presents him 
He, it, it's almost oh as if the, it's almost as if they're waiting to pull the rug out from underneath you because he magically appears so many times in that movie in a place where he doesn't have a valid reason to be. And so when we got oh, when we boy. when we got to the when we got to the point where she's actually on the other planet, I was just like, well, here's here's where we learn what he really was, and Matthew McConaughey's going to pop up, and nothing shocked me more that he wasn't there. Dude, you you overthought that one. No, I sat there in the theater going, "What no, the fuck are they doing?" I did no. Well, anyway. all right, back to Star Trek the motion picture because <laughs> yes. you don't know what the fuck you're talking about with Contact. All right, so anyway, it's not a perfect movie, but I love Contact, and there's some. I love that whole part with the sending them the the ability to make the machinery to go to the other planet. Yeah, they should have sent that's a, a poet. That's a great idea, and it was a great idea in this island Earth. Right. This island, Earth. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, okay. So what are we talking about? Okay, so we did the wormhole, which I can now finally breathe my breathe the sigh of relief because I got past my single favorite part of the film. <laughs> uh, so uh, let's see. Spock shows up, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't even, this is funny because we're, we're doing this and Spock has just shown up. He's acting all weird. He's acting very flat and everything like that. Uh they they show up they finally right after spock comes in and goes hey uh i'll work on the engines with scotty and gets it fixed and they take off and then once again a beautiful light streak they it's like really quick all of a sudden they're with Vidra. this is of course the director's cut and uh Vidra, uh we don't know what's called Vidra yet but it, we'll call it Vidra anyway it starts firing these energy balls at them and then uh, spock realizes that they're talking to them at super 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 high speed sending communications back to them and they respond and so the energy balls stop uh we get into that point where they start moving in on Vidra, and we get into all this abstract spaceship looking sort of stuff there's clouds you go through the clouds for a while this was one of the parts where people said it went on too long um and it kind of does but it's also really really it did interesting more in it's, the original it's really version interesting stuff yeah it's interesting, but we're, we're now talking, like you've said, this is a guy, this is Robert Wise, no slacker to science fiction, who probably really was taken in by 2001 A Space Odyssey and was trying to move uh, at least his version of Star Trek into a 2001 sort of super serious sort of experience sort of level. Um, are you, are, are you afraid s- of the word ponderous? Um, I, I, look... I'm, I'm 17. No, I might have been 18. Was I 17 or 18 when I saw Star Trek, the motion picture? I was born in 61. The movie came out in 79. I don't probably, know. Anyway. Probably 18 because you didn't see it until December. Yeah, but I wasn't born until December 27. I mean, December 27 is my birthday, oh, so I oh, wouldn't okay, have been. Okay, yeah. uh, but anyway, so I'm watching this thing. I'm not bored. So what does that say? I'm watching this, and it isn't be, it isn't just the love of Star Trek that's making me love this. I'm watching it with my fucking mouth hanging open. What does that say? Can a critic walk up to me and go, no, you're wrong, when I'm sitting there having this incredible experience? Well, I mean, no, you know I, what I mean? And, and I wouldn't argue that your experience is any greater or lesser than anyone else's, but at the same time, the... Uh I, I understand the criticisms of the film. I share some of the standard criticisms of the film, but I still find myself enjoying it every time I go back to it. But right. the, to, to, to point point this in a, in a, in a different direction, I kind of want to ask this question, which is 
Uh, for some people, the uh, the revelation of what V'ger is is interesting, but then you suddenly realize, you know, that for a lot of people, it's interesting, but that's all it is. In other words, the the failing for some people for this movie, and I'm not one of them, is that. There is really no. We've already mentioned this a little bit uh, earlier in the conversation, where we there. There's no denouncement that well. There, well, there's no ending that um, signals itself as an ending that you would normally expect from a huge, you know, spacefaring's big screen extravaganza. You and I, I think, are on the same page as far as feeling that that is a plus because it more apes the end of two thousand one than it does the end of something like Star Wars. But the uh, um, having painted themselves into a corner by having chosen this particular story to tell Mm -hmm. the uh, I do feel now I'll preface this by saying that I don't think I necessarily agree. I I don't think um, uh, the actress, uh, Kambata, what's her uh, Persis? Is it uh, Persis Kambata? I, yeah. I don't think she's particularly good, but I will not say what Mark Clark said in his Star Trek books, where he considers her what to be he absolutely. He's, he thinks she's absolutely terrible. Now the thing is, no. Uh, no, I, I understand the pers- I understand the perspective. I would, can, can, well, let, let, let me let, let, let me pause let me you. Okay, yes, sir. Yes, I sir. understand his perspective, but at the same time, she was given an impossible task. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, what she was asked to do was ridiculously, not just difficult, but to have asked it was almost a, a, a cinematic crime. Because it's a character we get to spend less than five minutes with, really, before mm-hmm. she's gone. Right, And then we have this automaton version of her. That somehow retains her, you know, retain, retains enough of her personality to factor into the finale. Mm-hmm. I don't know how she could have done a better job given the restraints and constraints placed upon her as an actress in the role. What do you think? Yeah, I, 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 I watched it again the other day on my big ass TV. Uh, That's of the actual brand name. Actually says big ass at the bottom. Yeah, now but, now now I suddenly have the same problem with you that I have with Bob Zemeckis and his big dick camera. So go ahead. You got a problem. You never <laughs> had a problem with dick before. So Well, it's all about it all boils down to No, I mean I just believe to, I so. look, as far as I'm concerned, the bigger a television set you have, the more successful you are in life. And my TV set is like about eighty inches. It's not big enough. Okay, I need a bigger TV. So I'm watching this thing. Now, I've never really thought much one way or the other about her character. I will say this. We now live in a society where a woman with a shaved head is not unheard of. True. Right? True. Back then, it was not heard of. I remember when 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 Patrick Stewart showed up and he's the new captain of the ship. I said, the guy's bald. He doesn't look anything like a William Shatner type. He's this bald dude, but people fell in love with him. But what she did and what they had her do back then was so nervy to go where not only we've got a, a the, the, one of the lead characters is bald when back when bald was hateful or awful or you could only be a villain you could only be Blofeld mm-hmm, yeah Blofeld Kambata <laughs> she ended up she ended up 
shaving her head and I was watching it last night and I'm like, there's these moments where she's starting to move back to being more human when she becomes the automaton and, and then, and then her face fades. And I was like, damn, that's, that's kind of hard. That looks like that would be hard to do. She had to keep fading back in and out of being a, a human and then not a human and everything. Um, what what can you say about the character? She was meant by the end of this show to disappear. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, but then look at some of the people that we love, love from the original Star Trek series who were only in fifty a 52-minute episode. Look at Commodore Decker. Mm-hmm. Look at William Wyndham. Look at some of the other people, Dr. Daystrom. I love William Marshall as Dr. Daystrom in The Ultimate Computer. These people weren't in there very long, but they still stick with us. But you, but you know I think, why I think they stick with us more than the Persis Cambada Elia character? I'm not saying she's great. I'm just saying she's not bad. No, I don't no, no. Agree with I'm not, this this has that. nothing to do with the actress in the role. This has to mm-hmm. do with the fact that all those characters that you mentioned from the original series – we learned more about them because of their interactions with the characters that we already know so well. Right. Her interactions are primarily with another character we don't know. And that's the point. Yeah. The youthful people in this film have their own story, and we're we're mostly interested in watching the people from the 1960s coming back. We're happy to see them, and but yet they the people from the 1960s have almost invaded the world of these people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not, it's, I mean, Chekhov, no, he's young enough. He's working on the ship and, and, and Sulu, Uhura, but the older ones, the, the, the top three, they're gone. So they're having to come back in and cause a disturbance. I think that, um, I think she's fine. I think it took balls. And I remember at the, at that time, really hating, uh, the character I hated her shaved head. I thought it was funny the way that they put the 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 little uh, ornamental rag thing around the top of her bald head. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nurse Chapel did, but uh, you know. But later, I'm like, you know, we're in a different world now. This woman could actually walk down the streets of New York or something like that, and nobody would think anything of it. I mean, no, of that, course not. Was, not today, was, was, but in 1979. I mean, it in was 1979. It was, it was it the was most t- alien thing about her immediately on view. Yes, and uh, you know, and I've also got you know a little bit of uh, I cut her a little bit of slack because the young lady died so young. Yeah, you know what true. I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and I'm kind of looking at her going. She did what she was supposed to do. Those two people were supposed to be lovers. Yes, she was bald, but the guy loved her, and in the end. While he didn't get to join with her herself, her, he got to join with something that was like part of her. And I'm like, well, that's sort of a science fiction-y sort of an ending, you know, where a guy actually mates with a computer and in the end creates something new. Um, A little bit of like 2001, but 2001 was about biological life forms. This was a combination of of a mechanical life form and a as they call it, carbon unit. Yep. Uh, so I'm going to cut her some slack. I don't think it was that bad. Um, you know, so, my, my, you know, the next time both of us see Mark Clark, I think we should really kind of back him into a corner and just verbally abuse him. 
I think Mark's a pretty sharp guy, but yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> I think I think it should be smack, 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 and a left, and a right, and oh, a left, oh, and a right. Okay. Well, I, I didn't want to. Who, I didn't who, want to resort to violence immediately, but okay. Yeah. Hey, Clark, are you listening? <laughs> he may and, very. He may very well. Well, what did he say? He really hated her guts or something? No, no, no. He just he, he just know? said that she's terrible in the role. I mean, he flat out uses the word terrible. Mm, I yeah, I think that's I I terribles terrible you want to talk about terrible the other movie that she was in and she wasn't even in that bad mega force oh god let's not talk about see what i when i think of her in uh in a good movie and and actually doing a good job i think of the film nighthawks she was quite good in that oh yeah 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 i i mean like i said i my heart breaks a little bit for her i mean she 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 died young yeah it just seems so crazy so um, I want to talk about a sequence, and this is in between the whole part where Ilya gets – okay, there's there's two parts I want to talk about. They're there. They're inside Vidra, and all of a sudden that probe shows up on the, on the bridge. I love that moment. That's not quite as good as the wormhole, but this tube of electricity floating across the bridge – uh, you know, checking out their, uh, you know, their computers and everything. And then Ilya, uh, you know, Spock tries to go over and smash the thing and it electrocutes him. Yeah. Then it electrocutes Ilya. Then it electrocutes Spock again. It's and a, then zaps it's a truly existence. scary moment of an of something truly alien happening. Yeah. It'd be beautiful. All right. So. Leah then comes back. She's now a, a, a robotoid that created by V'ger. Um, Spock then does another great moment, which is very 2001-esque. He, he uh, sneaks out of the ship, knocks a guy out, and takes a spacesuit and a thruster pack and flies off into the open opening of, of the V'ger orifice inside the deepest part of the ship. I love that sequence. The music is beautiful. Oh, the music, it's so yeah. science fiction. The the spacesuit that he is in, him talking. I mean, I was like, that was when I was watching the movie. I said, this feels like old Star Trek. Spock is talking. Leonard Nimoy is inside the helmet, talking about you know all the stuff yeah, that even he's seen. Visually, that. Even visually, it seems to echo the Tholian web a little bit. Oh yeah, good point. It's it's a great scene. I'm, I'm trying to run through a few more things. I know that we got to cut this short. Well, not cut it. We really don't got to cut it short. We've been talking for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. Um, but but when 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 Ilya comes back and now she's a robot and Kirk kind of gets pissed off with her and finally goes, "Hey, everybody, clear the bridge. We're not going to give you the information that you're talking about because you're going to destroy the planet Earth." I love that because they've got the nerve. This is where Kirk fully becomes Kirk. We're leaving. We're we're getting out of here. It's almost like you're an abusive lover, and you know it's like what you say. Like I tell my daughter, if a guy ever hits you, get the hell up and walk the hell out of the house. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're going to do. And I and and it is those moments. It's almost like the ending of the movie or near the ending of the movie, surviving Picasso. The woman got up and walked out and left Picasso to himself. These people were going to get up and leave Viger frustrated. And finally, she had to deal with it, or Vidra had to deal with it. But so they go to the they they get to the main heart of Vidra. They find out that it's Voyager six, and you said something about that earlier. I'm going to defend it in the fact that they 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 wowed the audience of 1979 by saying, "Remember that probe we just lost a few years ago, or we launched a few years ago? This is the result." Mm-hmm. That's yeah. science fiction again. And so they're talking about it. And then at the end, they take 
uh, by the way, in the director's cut, we actually see V'ger when the the clouds all dissipate and all that stuff when it's going to attack Earth if it doesn't get the information at once. And then at the end, other than doing a big shootout or this out of the other, the way that this creature can finally feel satisfied is to connect with something with emotion so it interconnects with a human being deckard gets to do it in a pretty spectacular like show that whole ending with the uh, with the uh voyager uh ship set in the middle of that cool looking science fiction uh set oh that's set. that they built I love. I've always loved that, and now that with the finished special effects in the in the version of the film we can see now. Oh, where they walk even, across. Yeah, it yeah. is so freaking cool. So gorgeous. Plus, and plus, the, big points for actually letting us see people walking on the outer hall of the Enterprise. Nice job. Yeah, that was pretty pretty bizarre at the time, but I love the way they. There was a whole article written in one of the film magazines. I don't know if it was American Cinematographer or whatever about the lighting of the way the lights were changed to change the mood. And by the time V'ger starts getting really irritated with the fact that it's not not getting what it wants, it turns to blood red, mm-hmm. and everybody's in blood red. And Kirk and Spock and McCoy, they're all trying to figure this thing out, and they finally figure out that the only way to satisfy what V'ger is needing is to give that entity emotions and to have them connect with the human so they do it and then everything it explodes but it doesn't explode in some negative way so one time in a yeah, film that an explosion not, is just a, light yeah it's not an explosion where there's where there's kind of where there's debris or or violence even it's well it's, it's like it's like yeah. the movie poster it's like the movie poster this whole film is about light and color now people can say "Eh, suits were desaturated yeah maybe so but the movie is about light and energy and color and it goes it starts right off at the beginning hell it starts when you're out in the parking lot looking at the movie poster and ends when you leave the film where this this explosion because this creature now does not need this all this mechanism and everything that it's brought with it because it understands and then at the end we have captain kirk he has done what he's supposed to do mm-hmm. he's he 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 got past his own uh, uh failures and everything and spock's like look I don't need to go back to Vulcan. I'm proud to have emotions here to a certain degree. And he, and he warmed up, and that set him up for the rest of the films where we had a warmer, not too warm, but warmer Vulcan. And uh, you know everybody's happy, and then they take the Enterprise out for a test run with the great Jerry Goldsmith score. So I love this movie. I, 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 like I said, I was young. I took old, sometimes I took older people to the theater to see it. I saw it multiple times. I watched it out of the six times it ran on HBO. I saw it five of them. I could only, I missed one of them because it was too late. It's like three o'clock in the morning or something. I had the, uh, the VHS. I had the laser disc. I had the DVD. I got the Blu-ray. I had the director's cut. I got the <laughs> a Blu-ray, the new Blu-ray director's cut and the 4k. And I will continue to buy it in whatever format. I love the film. Unapologetically, I think it's a great movie. Not perfect. I I agree. I will say that the later Star Trek films had more warm and fuzzy writing that pulls you into the classic Star Trek mode. But I think as a standalone film, I think it's a great film. I think that if they'd never made any more Star Trek films after this, everybody would feel that they knew why. But at the same time, there would be a certain satisfaction in having it as a capstone 
uh, a kind of intelligent science fiction capstone flaws and all that would have made yeah. it a kind of proud thing to have. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I still I still love the movie to this day. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't. Uh, well, I should say I like the movie. I don't know that I love the movie, but it, it is one like I've said before that I've re- I've returned to repeatedly because it mm-hmm. holds a, a a lot of fascination for me. And uh, it what, what sometimes what I want from a Star Trek story it doesn't give me, but I think that what it does give me is satisfying enough in different ways that I get enough of the Star Trek jollies out of it that it doesn't matter that. If I had chosen the story, it would have been different. Well, well, yeah. do me a favor the next time you watch it. Play this play this show before you watch it and get my enthusiasm and then re-watch it. That's all I'm asking. And I'm not trying to be funny or anything. You know, That's strange because like, you're being pe- funny as hell. Pe- <laughs> people, people, that, people that know that you and I battle a lot, like, yeah, I can really wait for you two to cut each other's throats. But I want you to think about the enthusiasm and I've tried to explain myself as best I can. This is the first time I've ever done this about this film. So mm-hmm. I was very excited to do this one. I want you to go over and go, what is he, what is it, what is it that he sees that other people or uh, there are, you know, a lot of people that do see it, but the people that don't, what is it that he's seeing that drives him so wild about this film? And it really does. Um, like I said, it's not a perfect movie, no. but it is a great movie. Um, with 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 some flaws, but I, I think the the good parts outweigh the bad. And overall, I'm I'm going to end up agreeing with you on that. But I've got to say that if uh, anybody listening to this uh, <laughs> wonders how long before Mark and I kill each other, uh, no, that's that's not the question to ask. But I will say that if you've got any, come to uh, Wonderfest in two months. Yeah, really. If you've got any, <laughs> if you've got any uh, opinions of your own about uh, Star Trek: The Motion Picture from 1979, give us uh, get, drop us an email at thebloodypit at gmail.com. I love to compare notes with uh, Mark. Uh, here in the future as we move forward through the various Trek films. This is uh, this is uh, one of the ones that uh, I think a lot of people feel needs to be defended or would have to be defended. And I think that, uh, as you can tell from our conversation, neither one of us have ever disliked the movie. And uh, my personal admiration for it has grown over the years. And um, I just I, I think that uh, the, the, the general consensus has kind of followed that about this movie over the years is that there was a there was a it was a punchline and a joke for years Star Trek the motionless picture you know things of that nature um, and so it becomes uh, it becomes this thing that not just because of the uh, the the work that has been done on it to turn it into uh, a better version of what it should have been in 1979 but just because that I think it ages pretty damned well. And yeah. uh, I'm not going to say like a fine wine. I am going to say that it uh, maybe uh, maybe um, maybe like a, a really really good Trappist ale something along those lines. It's a, it's a good film that needed to actually have it. It needed to sit in a lot of people's heads before it became something that was. Uh, shall we say, it, it, not just accepted, but kind of enjoyed in the way that it kind of deserved to be enjoyed. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mark, 
Before we uh, jump off of here, I've got a quick question for you. What have you been up to, and do you have any projects on the horizon that uh, we can actually learn about from you today? Um, well, you know, when you got clients and stuff, they want to announce it. Uh, I've got some, I've got book covers. Okay. I've got uh, some magazine covers I'm doing. I've got, I won't tell you what they are because I'm not going to uh, the people that are employing me. I've got a nice uh, uh, wraparound cover I'm doing for a project in Britain. Okay. I've got uh, a movie poster I'm doing for a PBS style uh, uh, movie that is going to come out soon. I've got um, a book a book by James Palmer and his group of people at Mechanoid Press where they bring Dracula, Frank the Frankenstein monster, the creature from the Black Lagoon and the Wolfman uh, they get grabbed by a team of scientists who use them to hunt down Nazis who want to create the Fourth Reich. Oh my God! Uh, yeah, I know it's wild. Um, there's, I, I've got a, I've got a ton of stuff. You know, um, I mean, I'm sure by the end of the year I'll be doing some more screen covers. I've got some artwork I'm doing for Little Shop of Horrors. Cool. Uh, blah 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 blah. Well, Little busy. Shop of Horrors is uh, is winding down, so that's it. I know a tear rolls down my face. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. it's, but you know, uh, Dick Clemenson's done a fantastic job of one of the greatest film magazines of all time. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, I mean, he's he's getting up there, and uh, you know, he's got. Uh, I think he thinks he's got three more issues in him. I'll be participating in some of them. One of them, one of them, I'll be doing a front cover for, and uh, you know, so that's that's, that's the cool. way the that's cool. cookie crumbles. But well, folks, I want to say uh, once again, thanks to Mark, and we will uh, we will talk uh, more soon about more Star Trek. So uh, thank you once again, Mark. Oh, thank you, Rodney. I appreciate it. You know, sometimes you have really bad ideas, but this one was a good one. Shut up! (laughs) So you and I will be seeing each other at Wonderfest in a couple of months, and I think right after that we'll turn right around a week later at Monster Bash. Certainly. I'm actually staying up there. I'm actually going to stay at uh, Buddy Ted Haycraft's house because it's ridiculous for me to drive all the way back to Florida and then drive all the way back up to Pennsylvania. So I'll be hanging with them and then heading over. I should try to podcast with uh, Ted again because we haven't talked since he and I did. He and I and – Bob Shit, we could do one together. Of fire, yeah, that was the. Oh, that was me, you, back. and me, you, and Ted. Ted is such a damn. He is. He is an un. un he is an unknown source of hardcore movie information. Oh yeah, he's, he's definitely. Untapped. He's serious. Yeah, he's on. Oh yeah, yeah. I tell you what, we'll yeah. uh, we'll we'll talk later. Everyone, thank you for listening to the show, and uh, we'll talk to you again later. My name is Rod Barnett. Say your name, Mark. Oh, I didn't realize. Say it. Say it. My name is Mark Maddox. <laughs> and, Matt and he Damon. Will, and, and he will be just fine. He only needs to be Matt whacked upside Damon. the head. Bye-bye, all. You idiot. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>